This is Chris Pearson out of Kaiserslautern, Germany, and welcome to The Candid Frame. Jasmine Mara Lopez loves telling stories. And in her roles as a journalist, radio producer, educator, and filmmaker, she has helped facilitate people telling their stories. Some of these have focused on communities affected by the H1N1 influenza virus and air pollution's impact on the Latino community of Boyle Heights. Though she works primarily with audio and film, she frequently collaborates with photographers and credits photographers she met early in her career with showing her why it's so important to be a storyteller. One, I learned about freedom, a freedom to sort of be yourself and also be your own storyteller with the work that you're doing. And I also learned a lot of the, you know, how to tell a story with one image. Yeah, it was just, it it was just the the way that they lived and they worked was so inspiring to me and so moving to me. And I, I felt like I had found people that were creating in a way that I wanted to create. Jasmine has also founded Project Loose, which provides young people the opportunity to tell their own stories and those of their communities in photographs, audio, and words. But she's also focused on events in her own life, including the sexual abuse she suffered at the hands of a respected family member. Through her own healing and her film, Silent Beauty, she aspires to not only tell these stories, but to challenge families who insist on living in denial and silence. Whether it be from family, you know, that you tell or the abuser, it's uh, denial, manipulation, silence, you know, and this is a way for people not to have to face what they've done or have to face change because they are so comfortable, if it's family, they're so comfortable uh, where they are. And they don't want to have to do this work. You know, that's the, I feel that's what it comes down to. It's scary. It's very, very scary to say the way I've lived up until now is not true. We'll talk to Jasmine about learning to become a storyteller using different mediums and how her collaborations have transformed her life and her work. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. You know, thank you for making for time for me. Um, I've been wanting to, to talk, the, the show mostly interviews photographers, but I thought it would be a mm-hmm. good opportunity to talk to someone who works with, you know, primarily audio. Mm-hmm. Also, the collaboration that you had down in Mexico with the kids in Project Luz was something that sort of interested me. But, you know, there's so many photographers that are getting into multimedia and there's so much talk about video all the time. And it's like, yeah, audio is a big part of that, guys. Uh, Don't forget that. Yeah. So I thought it would be good to talk to someone who has proficiency and expertise in in audio, but who still is involved in imagery, whether it's stills or film. So when I discovered your work, I thought, okay, you'd be perfect for it. So thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. I, I wanted to talk to you first about when you became interested in telling stories you're you're known as a journalist but was an in, did an interest in telling stories exist even before you sort of quantified it as journalism 
Yes, and I've actually thought about this a lot lately because I've had to write a lot of proposals for the film. Mm -hmm. And within those proposals, I have to write an artist statement or my artistic approach. So it's forced me to sit down and, and think about this. And I have to credit my grandmother for putting me on this path because when I was six, seven, eight years old, she would record she had this big tape recorder and would use a cassette and she would just leave it in the middle of the house and record. And so she recorded the soundscapes of our home and without realizing it, she was teaching me how to appreciate sound and story, you know, but story in a way that was not traditional. When I was in uh, middle school, we took our first trip to the Dominican Republic. And for whatever reason, I took a small tape recorder with me. And I did exactly what you just did. I just recorded audio while we were around. And I have probably two, maybe three seconds of my grandmother's voice. And that's it. I remember the sound of her voice in my head. And I discovered this cassette maybe 15 years ago. My dad had had it for whatever reason. And I just put it in there. And I hear my voice and my brother's voice when we were like preteens. And it's really kind of fascinating, especially considering what I do now, that there was always sort of a fascination with, with audio and, and telling stories. Because like you, it's always existed for me as, as a kid. But when did you start thinking that, that this affinity for telling stories could be something that you could actually do as a, a livelihood? Because sometimes it doesn't automatically translate into you believing that that's something that's possible. Yeah, and, and I didn't always believe that I could be a storyteller. I was definitely attracted to the idea in my late teens, really throughout my childhood, and in my late teens and in my early 20s. But I guess I never believed that I could do it. Like, I didn't have enough confidence in myself, and I just didn't see it as a path. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't until, and you made me think about this this morning, which is really great, because I was trying to, to think about sort of what my journey has been that led to where I am today. But in 2016, I moved to San Francisco. I left L.A. because I was not, I was very inspired by the artists around me and my friends, but I was not growing so I left L.A., I went to San Francisco and found a, an artist community in the Mission District, a lot of Latino artists, and they sort of welcomed me and took me under their wing, and I started to learn from them how they were telling stories through their art. And then I was inspired to create Project Loose, which was, I believe it was January of 2016. I'm sorry, 17. Yeah. Through Project Loose, I met even more artists, more photographers. Um, but I met two photographers that really changed my life and taught me about storytelling and taught me about photography. And that was Brian Frank and Darcy Holdorf, who came out of San Francisco State University. They were these emerging photographers. And I decided to invite them to collaborate with me on Project Loose. And then this beautiful collaboration started, but also this beautiful friendship and mentorship started. And so they really taught me unintentionally because I would just travel with them, lived with them, watched them in their work, and then sometimes started to help them doing research and a number of things. And that's where I started to learn. And that's where while we were working with the students and also seeing the students in, in Nezahualcoyot in Mexico, which it's right outside of Mexico City, 
I just, I was inspired and I decided I'm going to become a journalist. And I started with radio because I was very good at audio. It just came naturally to me. What did you learn about storytelling from those two photographers? Oh my goodness. I learned so much from them. Um, and I, I actually am, I'm going to write about this later today because it was, it was inspiring to, to reflect on that. I learned how to tell, well, not one, I learned about freedom, a freedom to sort of be yourself and also be your own storyteller with the work mm -hmm. that you're doing. And I also learned a lot of the, you know, how to tell a story with one image and, yeah, it was just, it, it was just the, the way that they lived and they worked was, was so inspiring to me and so moving to me. And I, I felt like I had found people that were creating in a way that I wanted to create. You said something really interesting now, then I want to dig a little deeper. You said they taught you how to be yourself with your storytelling. I like the way that sounds, but I, you need to go a little deeper. Tell me, tell me a little <laughs> more about that. Yeah, I think... It's, you know, they to begin with, they were just very independent people, and they just knew that they wanted to tell stories in a certain way, like what came to them, what was in their heart, mm -hmm. and they went for it. They didn't care about, you know, following this path that they were told in school to follow. They decided to go to Venezuela and Bolivia and, and find stories, but also find themselves and find the type of people they wanted to work with and who they wanted to be and, and what their mission was, what their vision was for themselves and their work. Mm -hmm. And they just did it. It didn't matter that there were challenges. It didn't matter that they were running out of money. It didn't matter that people were telling them, don't do this or don't do that. They, they were doing it because they felt it in their heart. How much part of uh, part of that has to do with this myth of objectivity? This idea that if you're telling, as a Latina, telling stories that are aspects of your understanding and your experience of the culture, that somehow that you have to be reminded that you have to create this sort of distance between yourself and and the story. Was that something that they were giving you and uh, they were pushing against, and that they were? revealing to you that, that no that that's not the only way that you can tell a story absolutely they were definitely very much about connecting with the people that they were working with they were very much about learning about the history of the places that they were in um you know whether it be home or another another country but they were very empathetic they were very open they were very they understood where their subjects were coming from and, mm -hmm. and they understood the challenges or um, there were, you know, a lot, they, they asked themselves very, a lot of questions about the ethics of what they were doing. They just challenged themselves, but also while challenging what they were told they were supposed to do. So tell us more about Project Loose because it's a combination of photography and also multimedia audio combined. And you're working with kids and young people in Mexico, teaching them how to tell their own own stories. So how, tell me, tell me how about how this worked. How many kids you, you work with? How long was the program? Mm -hmm. So Project Lose came from a very personal place, and most of my work does. 
I, I told this story many times, but I was sitting in a, a cafe in San Francisco and I was, uh, had just gotten off the phone with my uncle and he had told me about uh, how my cousin was struggling. And, you know, I grew up, I was born in the U.S., but most of my family was in Mexico from my father's side of the family. And some of them couldn't come to the U.S. I grew up with an understanding of these injustices, you know, border issues and uh, immigration issues. And I didn't look at them so much politically, but they, they were in my life. So I understood them. I understood that my cousins couldn't come here, but I could go there. And so a lot of this plays a part in, the, in my work and drives a lot of my work today. And so I was sitting in, San, in this cafe in San Francisco in 2017, and I got off the phone with my uncle. I was very concerned about my cousin, and I was just reflecting on our childhood and thinking back on how I had so many opportunities, even though we grew up you know, in a low-income, working-class immigrant community in, in the L.A. area, my cousins grew up in a place where there was a lot of poverty and they didn't have a lot of the opportunities that I had. And so I thought to myself, well, if I do want to go back home and I do want to do something, what can I do? And so I started to think about my training, in working with youth and coordinating youth programs. And I started to think about the relationships that I've built with artists in the L.A. and San Francisco areas. And that's how I came up with Project Loose. And I decided to start it in my family's town. We did it there a couple of times, ran some I think it was like two week, week to two week long workshops. And it wasn't just me, Brian and Darcy it was also uh, the first one had um, photographers uh, like Brandon Thibodeau, Christina Barker, mm. uh, Justin Maxson. There was quite a few that came out of San Francisco, but there were also people from other cities in the U.S. and countries. After that first year, we stopped working in my family's town, and I was introduced to a community center in Esahualcoyot, which is right outside of Mexico City, uh, right next to Mexico City. And it's through this community center that Project Clues found a home. And so we worked with the community center. Uh, we would invite students to apply for the program. And the community center would do that side of the work for me. And then I would fundraise to get equipment. And I would find photographers to come in and teach these workshops. And there were photographers from Mexico, the U.S., Venezuela, all sorts of places that would come together. And we all worked together. And it was just this really amazing experience that we all benefited from. What, what kind of stories did these, these young people tell? They told stories about mostly their, what they see in their day-to-day. -day. Because the thing that really struck me when going to Nessa, uh, Nessa Walcoyo, is, uh, Nessa is, that's for short. What struck me is when I moved to Mexico City and when I started to do the work to get ready for Project Luz there, I heard from a lot of people how dangerous Nessa was. I heard, you know, questions like, why are you going there? Don't go there. You're going to get robbed. And be careful. Why are you going there by yourself? And so I had all of these, you know, people were concerned about me going there and had their opinions and, and ideas of what Nessa is. And then I got there and I saw what a beautiful place it was, what a beautiful community it was. I saw how hard the community center manager was working to cultivate community and to offer these different opportunities. And 
So I told that story to the students, and they wanted to push back on that, and so mm-hmm. they decided to, you know, paint this portrait, their their portrait of like whatness eyes to them. So that's what they did continuously, as they would share stories of you know different things in their community, like the luchadores or their uncle. The market and what's within the market, who's within the market, and what that means to the community. So yeah, they've they've done a lot over the the years, and we worked with them for about eight years. I'd say one to two times a year. What's always interesting interesting about working with young kids is that you give them just a, a bit of information. In this case, about how to use a camera, how to use a recorder, how to put together a story, and every time I've done it. I sometimes am very surprised by what they produce. And I think part of it is that they don't know what they're not supposed to do. And as a result, they just create something completely unexpected that's also sort of wonderful. From your experience over these years, what have you learned from these kids and how they've created their own stories that is something that you couldn't have learned in a classroom? Well, number one, they were definitely my teachers. They really did teach me, I guess like Brian and Darcy, they taught me to be free in the way that I approach my work. And also on a more personal level, they taught me that I have family outside of my family. And this was a big part of my journey and just you know, my personal journey and also my my professional journey in just figuring out who I am and what I want in life. And when I say that they taught me about family, an example of this is I go back and they still welcome me. One of the students, I mean, so many of them are tracking the work that I do now. And one of the students, while she was in the university, she got this exchange, got into this exchange program and went to university for a semester in New Mexico. And instead of going on her, on a road trip with her friends to California during her spring break, she asked to come to stay at my home in New Orleans. And she wanted to learn more about what was happening in my life. And she wanted us to continue that relationship. Mm. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really beautiful part of my life that I am just so grateful for it, and, and I don't think that I was, I mean, I, I'm a very spiritual B2B person sometimes, and I really do think that these people were put in my path for a reason. How do you come to decide what stories that you want to work on? You had several examples of, of audio stories on, on your site that I, I listened to, but you know, one of the questions that a lot of photographers have is like, if they want to tell a story or if they want to work on, on a documentary project, they may have a, any variety of different ideas, but they struggle trying to figure out, okay, exactly which one am I going to tackle? So I'm sure that there are any number of ideas that pop into your head, you know, but which ones do you decide to tackle and why? Well, some of them, like many, many journalists, some of them have come and sort of, you know, landed in my lap, but... I think because of how I approach my work, and, and I'm not afraid to say that so much of my work comes from my personal experience, or, or so much of my the interest in the in this issues that I cover mm-hmm. come from my personal experience. So people know this, and they know 
where my experience lies and they trust my work and they trust me. And so they've often come to me to collaborate. But the, a lot of the projects that I've chosen are because of what my family went through or what I went through as a child. And so I'm covering issues related to that because I think it needs attention and I think I can tell the story with heart. So an example of this is when I collaborated with uh, photographer Brandon Thibodeau on Deadly Divide, Migrant Death on the Border, which was a documentary I made in 2014 and went to both to Texas and Mexico, Falfarias, Texas and uh, Reynosa in Mexico to talk about, to find out and talk about you know, why the high number of deaths that were taking place on the U.S. side of the border. So tell me about that collaboration that you have sometimes with photographers or cinematographers for your films or your multimedia projects. What are you looking for in your collaborations with a photographer? Well, I like, number one, I want to know that this person has heart. And this person is doing their work for the right reasons, what I think are the right reasons. That they're not doing it to show off and to get these awards, but, you know, and to be the best photographer, but because they want to tell a story. They want to tell someone else's story with what they've learned. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, that's, that is how I've connected with different photographers along the way. It's even today is it, I'm collaborating with uh, Bron Moyi, which is a director of photography for Silent Beauty, my film. And we're in that in production right now. And the reason I chose Bron is because he understands my experience. He understands my experience because he is also a survivor and he understands. I mean, his work is beautiful, but he's also a very sensitive person, a very thoughtful person and I've seen how he approaches people and subjects and I just decided that this is the person that I need to collaborate with. Yeah, because when you're working on, on, on a project, a documentary project of any variety, you go in with what you think is the story or the, or, and the angle from which you're going to tell the story. And as a result of the process of actually working on it and producing the content, it takes any number of twists and turns. And when, and when you're doing it solo, you know, you're, you're pretty much left to your own devices to kind of sort of figure out what fits, what doesn't fit, what needs to be left out. But when you're collaborating with someone else who's working with a completely different medium than you are primarily are, what's necessary in that dialogue between the two of you to make sure that you guys are sort of moving in the right direction, remaining true to the vision, but also being open to the different perspective that they may bring or discover as a result of their of them producing their own part of the story. Does that make sense? It does, it does. And I would say honesty with yourself and with you know transparency. Really it's okay to be afraid and to you know be nervous about sharing with this person that you don't know anything about this or that, mm-hmm. uh, or you're in a place where you're completely lost. I think number one is, is building a trust and, and, or knowing you have a trust with this person that you can do that. Because if you're able to do that, then you have a real collaboration. When you reach a point where you feel lost or you can't move forward or you're confused, you don't know which way to go, this person is your partner and this person is going to help you move forward. And I, I can think of several examples with, with Braun recently. Last year, 
I'm a new I'm a new director and I'm this is my first film. It's a feature length film and it's a huge huge project. And there's I feel a lot of pressure because there's a lot of support behind this project and there's also the story of not not only my story but the story of survivors in my family and survivors in other families. And so it's very scary because I've I trust Bron and I have been very transparent about where I am. I could tell him right now I'm learning. Right now I'm learning and what do you think? You know, mm-hmm. or leaving him some space to also guide, you know, and and also bring his vision to the project. Be the voice that introduces the episode like Chris Pearson's did this week. Just send us an audio file recorded on your phone, tablet, or computer saying something like, this is Dorothy Gale from Liberty, Kansas, and this is The Candid Frame. Say it at least a couple of times so we have a take to choose from, and include three to four seconds of silence with your voice to help us clean up the audio. Also, make sure to include a link to your website blog or Instagram feed when you send it to info at thecandidframe.com Help The Candid Frame to continue bringing you great conversations with some of the world's best photographers. You can do this by supporting our Patreon effort by committing as little as $5 or more a month. When you do this, you not only help us to meet the cost of production, but provide us the time and resources we need to bring you conversations you won't hear anywhere else. Sign up today by visiting patreon.com forward slash the candid frame. Thank you. You know, your, your film Silent Beauty is, was born from sexual abuse that you experienced as a, as a young girl. And one of the, I think the most challenging aspects of telling a story is being willing to be honest and completely open about it. And it can be difficult to do even if the events aren't as traumatic as yours were. Especially for Latinos, we tend to be very secretive and mm-hmm. no habla no de eso and all that mm-hmm. stuff. And we sort of, that gets baked into us. Yes. Right? So it's often more, it's easier to tell someone else's story than our own. So... What do you think sort of led up to you finally being able to tell this story that you may not have been able to tell maybe even 10 years ago? Yeah, I think it's probably been, uh, it's been a number of things, but you're absolutely right. Like a lot, you know, one of the, the, you know, que van a decir, what are they going to say? Like that's, that's what you hear so much in, in Latino families and, you know, something that was like deep in me. I never talked about it. I never talked about it. I never, uh, it was my grandfather that abused me. And I never told anyone that my grandfather sexually abused me until it was 2014 when I told my family. And leading up to that, I had been telling other people's stories, but I had been encouraging others to tell their own Mm -hmm. through Project Loose through different training programs that that I was a part of and that I was, you know, either an instructor or I was leading the project. Um, But I was continuously teaching people to tell their own story. 
And then in 2014, my niece was born and I saw a photo of her with my grandfather. So that is what set me off. But mm. it's, you know, both my niece being born, uh, my, own, my own need and desire to tell my story and be heard and, and, and the desire to have my family face this honestly. And also all of these people that I taught also were teaching me, you know, to, yeah. to tell our own stories. And so uh, when I told my family in 2014, I hadn't actually decided to make this a film. I decided to make it a film later. In, in 2015 is when I said I want to be a filmmaker. I had just moved to New Orleans and I had a couple of filmmaker friends visiting because their films were in the festival that year. And so I spent that week with them. And I was so inspired by them, by the other filmmakers I had conversations with, filmmaking in general. And so I told myself, I'm going to be a filmmaker and I'm going to start with my own story. And so for a year, I sort of sat with the idea you know, I went through a lot of the old archival footage that my family had, uh, Super 8 films, and just for a year thought about what I was going to do with this. And then in 2016, decided to pitch it at, during the New Orleans Film Festival. So I applied to be in this pitch competition. I became a finalist. I went in front of everyone and told my story publicly, publicly for the first time. Mm. And it was so powerful. And the response was so powerful and positive and encouraging that I just kept going from there. 2016, uh, I'm sorry, 2017, I became a part of the mentorship program through the New Orleans uh, Film Society where I met Braun. And it just went from there. Tell us about your your grandfather and his role, not only in the family, but within the, the community. Yeah, so my grandfather was a Baptist minister. He was, you know, the patriarch of the family, so everything centered around him. You know, we'd have gatherings at his dinner table, and he was at the head of the dinner table. Uh, through the church, you know, we had a we had a big community, and he was leading this community. Uh, we would do a lot of missionary projects in Mexico, in LA, and he led these projects. And so the family and the community highly respected my grandfather. And he was a very charismatic person. He knew how to lead a lot of people, but he was also a pedophile. And he began to sexually abuse me when I was eight, nine years old, when I, because I lived with him. Uh, I lived with him from five years old to about 12 years old. Uh, so I didn't know how to tell anyone. And, you know, the first time that it happened, I made the decision that I was not going to break my grandmother's heart. Like, I just knew there was so much, I felt so much shame, which you know, my family did not teach me about sex, about sexual abuse, about body parts, about body safety. So I did not have the language. I didn't have the language and I was taught to love and respect this person. And all I knew is that this person that I'm supposed to love and respect deeply is hurting me. Yeah. That shame goes, goes a, you don't have to be taught it. You just feel it. And it's just like so, um, it's so visceral that you feel like it has to be true. So I completely, mm -hmm. completely get that. Um, when, God, um, this, I, this idea of being able to 
give voice to something that you um let me try this again. Mm-hmm. I'm usually very good at this. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. <laughs> if I if I did all of this to you by telling my story, that's great. That's I'm, oh, no, I'm getting good no. at this. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think I think part of what, uh, no, I'm kind of I'm, I'm sort of hedging because it's just like because um, I relate a lot to this this mm-hmm. this whole idea because you have a moment in the in the film where you call your grandfather to confront him. And he tells you, oh, you must have been dreaming that where does all this come from? And when I listened to that, that really pushed a button for me. Because I, when I talk to my parents or relatives about things that I remember happening, they would tell me the very same thing. Oh, that never happened. And it's like, I would just look at them. And they would just look at me straight-faced. And that really just like, oh, I know that. I know that. And... I think it's it's really fascinating this idea of trying to tell your truth, whether it's in writing or with a film, when you have people who are your family, the people who are the mean the most to you, who are there supposedly to protect you, who look you in the face and say, You're wrong. That's not true. And that's an incredible challenge to have to surmount, not just in terms of creating a film. Right, but just personally, besides the initial shame that you may have felt, there's this wall of familial resistance that's there, whether it's said verbally or not, it's there. And I kind of wonder about you being able to surmount that to be, like you said, honest and true to the story that you're trying to tell. Yeah, it's. Uh, I definitely faced a lot of that familial resistance. Uh, whether it be from family, you know, that you tell, or the abuser. It's uh, denial, manipulation, silence, you know, and this is a way for people not to have to face what they've done or have to face change because they are so comfortable, if it's family, they're so comfortable uh, where they are Mm -hmm. and they don't want to have to do this work. You know, that's the, I feel that's what it comes down to. It's scary. It's very, very scary to say the way I've lived up until now is not true. And so I faced a lot of this in my family. And through my, you know, exploration, investigation, whatever you want to call it, interviewing other family members, I realized that, you know, this isn't the first time it happened. And it, my family has shut down an aunt of mine to the point where she won't, doesn't want to talk about it right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think she is probably, I don't know for sure because it's still hard for a lot of my mother's siblings to talk to me, but I think she's proud of the work that I'm doing. Um, I hope that she knows I'm doing it not just for myself, but for the healing of my family and our ancestors. But, you know, it's, it, it's, I've, I, through this work, I have found out that it didn't just happen to me. It happened to my aunt. It happened to my mother when she was three years old and she didn't remember until mm-hmm. she started to have the flashbacks once I started doing this work. It happened to my uncle. It happened to my cousins, several. And he abused all of these people. He hurt all of these people. And he, what he did is still affecting people today. 
And one of the surprises was that he had kept, um, I guess, a diary of his life, and you discovered that he had himself been molested when he was a young man. Yeah. So he decided, I, I don't know for sure when he wrote this, but he decided to tell his life story. He wrote his life story. And actually, I think it was at the encouragement of my mother and, and maybe his, his sons because he's had very interesting experiences growing up. And so he was encouraged to write his life story. And so he sat down, typed it out on a typewriter. And I'm going to say it was 10 years ago. It's well before I... I decided to tell the family Mm -hmm. and he gave it to my mother and asked her to hold it for him and he I think he what he wanted to do was to have my mother like transfer it somehow uh, to digitize it and so my mother had it but she put it away in storage and she completely forgot about it and it wasn't until I came to her She decided to get rid of the house she was living in because that's where it all happened. She ended the relationship with him. And in going through a lot of storage, she found this book or this manuscript. And Mm. she asked me if I wanted it. And I, of course, wanted more answers because he did not give me much when I confronted him in that phone call. And so when I read this, when I started to read his life story, it just... It changed my perspective. It changed the path that I was on. It actually gave me some healing because I made the decision to empathize with this child. There was a child that was sexually abused and neglected several times. Mm -hmm. And this child was completely alone. I do not forgive the person that hurt me in my family. I do not forgive my grandfather as an adult, but there was a child that was abused. And so I'm, I've decided that in my film, I'm going to introduce that child's story and honor that child's story. You know, one of the powerful moments is this clip of the film where you're sitting on the couch with your mom. And that for me was just incredibly powerful, very moving. It's, it's a challenge to talk to parents about a lot of intimate things, much less traumatic things like that. And I was just amazed at the bravery of both of you to be able to sit there and, and talk about this, especially in front of a camera. Tell me about building up the trust enough to be able to do that. Yeah, that, that took some time. <laughs> but I'll back up a little bit before that trust came. So my mother and I always had a fractured relationship and I could never understand why she was the way she was until I decided to share my experience with the family and confront my grandfather and really face this truth. Then I found out that my mother was sexually abused as a toddler and she had no idea. She had no idea, but she was going through life with the effects of this trauma. And so she was not able to be there for me as the mother that I needed because she was completely blind to her own experience. And so learning that it happened to her really broke down a wall for me, a huge wall, and really helped me to see who she was and where she was. And the trust came when my mother... My mother was the first person I told in my family. And I decided to tell her first because she was fiercely loyal to my grandfather. She was the person 
that would take him to the doctors. She was the person that would take him to all the family parties. And so I knew that when I told her this, I was going to crush her world. And she was either going to support me or she was going to hate me. And she decided to support me. And so when I saw her do that, it just, I don't know, I just saw a new mother before me and she wanted to be this mother. And she is doing everything that she can to support me in this process, but to also help our relationship heal and grow. Part of that is, you know, the both of us being very honest with one another and dropping or just being honest about our fears and sitting with one another openly and with an open heart and not being afraid of one another. You know, we've released any resentments that we had towards each other. And so while it's very, very, very difficult to talk about these things, it's also very easy because we both want to heal. Because it's as, as bad as the act itself is and a lot of people sort of fixate on on that the violation in whatever form that it takes what's really toxic is everything that happens afterwards you know the secrecy the shame the resentment the fear and you've in making this film have are helping not only to heal yourself but your mother your relatives and the other people who've heard you tell your your story and when you talk about it being a powerful, an, a powerful and a self-affirming thing, it, I, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but it comes from the fact that you're able to help people heal themselves from something that is is like this lingering disease inside of you that you can never really ever get rid of until you're finally able to face it, be honest with it, confront it, accept it, and and find a way of letting it go. Yeah, it's, it's uh, interesting that you bring this up now because I just yesterday, was it yesterday? I get so lost in my days here at this residency because <laughs> it's so beautiful. <laughs> There's this beautiful prairie out there and I really just have, you know, these 19 days to just create and enjoy nature. So I think it was yesterday that this took place. I had a, maybe the day before. I had a meeting with my mentor, uh, Lucila, through, um, through Chicken and Egg Pictures. They're, they've, they awarded us funding and mentorship for the year so that I can get this project done. So I was on the phone with Lucila and, uh, you know, she was just helping me to figure out the story and the structure of the film. And she asked me this question that you are asking is, is uh, you know, what, what do these survivors do for me? You know, I can, there are a lot of things that they do for me. They, you know, they, they are a support to me. They, um, you know, there's a couple dozen of us that have an online support group now because of this. They share their stories with me, so I feel connected to someone. I feel that someone also experienced, knows my experience. But the answer to that question that came very you know, quickly and very easily is that they give me hope. Mm -hmm. They give me so much hope. We are all learning about ourselves and our experience, but we're learning about this world and learning how we can make this better. 
And a really interesting thing that that Braun has said, and this was I, I heard this following this phone call, so it's all kind of like come together all at once, and I feel in a very like I'm in a very, this very euphoric moment. But Braun said. He was, I, I was listening to a recording of him and his mother where he first told his mother three months ago. And, you know, he, he told his mother because he's been a part of this project. And he told his mother on the phone, you know, after he shared what experience he had went through, after she was sharing the same, you know, that she went through the same experience uh, throughout her life. He said something so beautiful and so obvious, but... It's it's still something we need to work on, and it's it's if we are just more honest about the human experience and what we're going through, then it'll be so much easier for us all to share, to share more, yeah. and to listen. And that's all it takes is just honesty and understanding that we all have different experiences. What you just said in terms of each of us basically has a story that's deserving of being told, and. When I talk to photographers, especially young photographers, they often think that their own lives, their own experience is not particularly interesting because they've been living in their own skin the whole time. They don't think it's, uh, you know, there's nothing interesting about me. And especially if you're a person of color and you haven't seen your narrative or aspects of it in film or in television or in books, it sort of reinforces the idea that my story isn't anything very special to tell. But your experience, not only with the film, but working with the kids, and what what would be your advice for people who who feel like they want to explore storytelling in whatever medium that that they prefer, are struggling with finding or being willing to tell a story that's very close to home? I mean, I guess I, my advice would be. And it's not an easy thing, but start with your own. Start with your own, but, and you don't necessarily have to put it out there, you know, but look at your own experience and what you know, the knowledge you have, the experience you have, and use that. And start with your own, because that's sort of how I did it, is, is when I started telling stories through journalism, it was through my own story. You know, I, I didn't really know that then, but everything that I was choosing to cover, the stories I was really passionate about, were because I understood them because of my experience. So maybe let that drive you. Let your experience drive you, and you'll either learn how amazing your story and how interesting your story is, or you'll find stories in your community to tell. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend a photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own, and it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. There's so many. <laughs> <laughs> and I have so many friends that do amazing work. Uh, let's see. I think I really appreciate the work of Annie Flanagan. Uh, Annie Flanagan is somebody that I met a few years back and who actually was somebody that supported this, this project. She, they, they initially, it was like this collaboration where, where because I, I was just learning about, about my own story and, and how I was going to put it out there. And Annie was just very 
excited for me and was doing any, you know, any help that I needed. Mm-hmm. If they could do it, they were there. And so their work focuses on gender-based violence. It's just very, very beautiful, powerful work. So I, I think off the top of my head, you know, that's, that's the, one of the people that I respect, that I highly respect and whose work I think is just beautiful. Well, Annie thanks. Flanagan. Thank you for that recommendation. And thank you so much for making time and uh, taking a break from all that beautiful nature outside of your door. And I uh, appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, thanks for this opportunity. It's always great to, to chat about the work. Thanks to Jasmine for sharing a time and story with us. You can find out more about her and her work by visiting jasminelopez.wordpress.com. To hear and see me talk about my personal photographic process, visit the TCF YouTube channel. There I offer comments on photography submitted by TCF listeners who submit images to the Candid Frame Flickr poll. Check out the TCF Flickr poll and our YouTube channel by clicking on the link in the show notes and the website. My recent book, Making Photographs, Developing a Personal Visual Workflow, is available. Purchase it today and receive 40% off the list price when you order it from the Rocky Nook website. Use the promo code Forello 40 at checkout to take advantage of the discount. And receive three free copies of my previously published ebooks by signing up for the Candid Frame mailing list, where I share thoughts about life, photography, and keep you updated on TCF events. If you enjoy the show, help to spread the word by writing a review wherever you find and listen to podcasts. And if you write a review on a blog post, let me know and send me a link because I would really like to thank you on air. Thanks to Bob Soltis and Gobi Magazine for including us in their recent blog post. You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon, or you can make a one-time contribution via PayPal. You'll find the links for both in the show notes and the website. Thanks to Lawrence Cayabo, Bruce Lipsky, and Dave Mullen for their recent contributions. Thank you so much. And if you want to easily access every episode of The Candid Frame, download The Candid Frame app. It's available for both Apple iOS and Android, and it's free. And if you scroll down on the app, you'll find a free excerpt of my book that you can download. And we also have an Alexa app, so if you have one of those smart devices, download the skill and listen to the show that way. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.